Welcome back to the program. As novels and movies have shown us, when both partners in a relationship tell the story of that relationship, the images, the memories, the experience is generally profoundly different. Even in good or strong relationships, the perception is shaped by the stories and, yes, even the lies we tell each other and ourselves as a kind of lubrication for intimate interaction. Over time, the stories and lies build up until truth is almost indistinguishable from perception. Even the most innocent things like appearance, cosmetics, clothing, and even pharmaceuticals are there to mask our true selves in the effort to make us taller, smarter, younger, or just happier. These are some of the lies that my guest Clancy Martin talks about in his new book, Love and Lies, an essay on truthfulness, deceit, and the growth and care of erotic love. Clancy Martin is the author of the novel How to Sell, as well as many books on philosophy. He's a Guggenheim Fellow, a contributing editor at Harper's, and also writes for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Atlantic. It is my pleasure to welcome Clancy Martin to the program to talk about Love and Lies. Clancy, thanks so much for joining us. Ah, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. A delight to have you here. It is interesting how we somehow manage to always be in denial about the small lies that we tell, particularly in intimate relationships. Either we don't realize how they build up over time, or or there's just some internal mechanism that prevents us from really coming to grips with it. Talk a little about that. Sure. Well, I think you really put your finger on it with um, your remark about an internal mechanism, and um, that's absolutely crucial uh, for two reasons. Um, One, an observation made by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he said, um, lying to others, relatively speaking, is an exceptional event. How we learn to lie and how we lie most commonly is by lying to ourselves. And the funny thing is about self-deception is if I tell myself a lie about myself before speaking to you, then I'm able to be completely sincere when I'm, when I'm telling you who I am. And it's a, it's a little bit like um, a joke Chris Rock makes. You know, Chris Rock says, when you first meet a person, you're not meeting that person, you're meeting that person's agent. Right. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little bit like that. We, we, we manipulate our own self-images and the truths about ourselves, especially when we're falling in love or when we're trying to seduce someone or when we're being seduced, but also in all kinds of other interpersonal care relationships, um, in order to, um, to feel like we are being honest with the people that we are t- talking to. So that's, that's the first part of um, the equation. The second part of this eternal mechanism that you mentioned is that um, we are... Um, astonishingly inattentive or selectively attentive when it comes to the kind of speaking and acting that we do when we're interacting with other people. So um, an awful lot of the times, and I think in, in some sense even this recent case where you might say an egregious lie took place for poor old Brian Williams and his, um, and his widely discussed lie about, um, about uh, the... the you know, mm-hmm. helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we, we so often say things without really quite realizing what we're saying, or we're in the habit of exaggeration, and so an exaggeration kind of flies under our own radar as we're speaking, and then maybe even after we've said it, we're like, oops, gosh, did I really say that? I wish I could take that back, but now I'm sort of got my heels back in. Um, and we do this constantly just because we aren't very scrupulous observers, either of what we're thinking, what we're feeling, or um, 
even what we're speaking, and this may, may be less true of people who make their make their living uh, uh, off their voices, people who, like yourself who, are, um, who speak on the radio or people like Brian Williams who are journalists, they, they ought to be more scrupulous. But it's just being human, you know. It's it's hard for us to pay attention to everything that we're speaking, speaking, thinking, and feeling at any given time. We're we're just not that attentive. We're not that careful. The other part of it, though, is the way in which traditionally the chickens have come home to roost, even in the most intimate of relationships. Those things that aren't public, those situations where somebody is not a public person, because sometimes those early lies that we tell become the seeds of destruction later on. Well, now, that's, um, again, very important for a couple of reasons. Um, One is, absolutely, um, we should recognize, I guess, three things quickly. One thing we should recognize, I think, and this is something we learn from the Greek philosopher Aristotle, just like every activity can be done in excess or in deficiency, you can sleep too much or sleep too little, eat too much or eat too little, exercise too much or exercise too little. You can tell the truth too much and do a lot of damage or tell the truth too little and do a lot of damage. You can, you could certainly lie too much and do a lot of damage. You could lie and uh, I argue, especially in the context of loving relationships, too little. Um, and do a lot of damage. But what about these early lies that, as you point out, we tell? One of the reasons I think that um, those early lies can turn out to be so damaging to love relationships later on is that we make this mistake of supposing that our trust in the people that we love and um, and the people we care for and the people who love us and care for us depends entirely upon honesty and transparency. And that's a lie we've already told ourselves from when we were very young, and probably a lie that our parents told us, and probably also part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. I mean, Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians, um, love, love, love seeks not evil, but speaks the truth, and sort of opposing um, lies to goodness in that um, passage that's so often cited in weddings. Um, If we think that, oh, in order for me to have confidence and trust in you, I have to be able to count on you to tell the truth all the time, then, of course, an early lie exposed later in the relationship could completely destroy the relationship. But if we are a little more sophisticated and a little more honest in our thinking, we'll realize no, um, it wasn't just that you told me some early lies in our relationship. I told you some early lies, too. And as a matter of fact, I probably told you some little lies earlier today, and you probably told me some, too, depending upon who you were talking to and what the context was. Um, And um, so we have to revise our conception of what we really expect from the people Um, who care for us and we care about, the people we love and the people we are in love relationships with, and recognize that, um, no, our trust, a lot of the times we trust them to lie to us. And a lot of the times um, caring for each other doesn't mean placing the truth first. It means um, exercising a kind of careful discretion about what we are ready to hear and when and not being too quick to judge someone you love as a liar, but rather asking yourself tough questions about, um, have I been as truthful as I am demanding that the other person be? 
The problem with that, I suppose, is that, A, it is such a minefield to navigate, and one is never sure where the line of demarcation is between those lies that are the lubrication for, for life and relationships and the point where it, it kind of goes nuclear. The other part that, that, you, that you touch on that I think is equally important is that it takes a degree of sophistication to really define those nuances, and it's more than most people want to bring to the party, so to speak. Yep, you're absolutely right. Um, so two points, the minefield and the sophistication, the sort of, you know, the epistemological work, I suppose you might say, that we have to do. First of all, the minefield. Um, there's no question, and we've all seen it, and many of us have experienced it, when um, a lie um, uh, has escalated, you know, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, when a lie has escalated and undermined a really important love relationship. And so we have to be aware, uh, if we're going to be good lovers, of these, um, of the fact that um, deceptions, like also, I would argue, certain kinds of truths, um, put us in this um, potentially treacherous territory. And it's one of the one of the reasons I think that the truth appeals to us sometimes is we as we it's a very good defense mechanism. We can say, well, but I told you the truth, and and um, because we have this old idea that somehow truth and goodness are identical, we feel like that's a sufficient defense. You know, I told you the truth, so that's the end of the story. You lied to me, so you're in the wrong. I told you the truth, so I'm in the right. But um, I do think, if we are honest with ourselves, we recognize that it is a lot more sophisticated communication between human beings, and as a matter of fact, we see this in non-human animals as well, is a lot more complicated than that. And if we want to be in long-term loving relationships, we simply have to accept the fact that we're going to really, we're really going to have to examine how we speak about um, about each other, to each other, with each other, how we communicate, uh, what, how much work successful communication is going to be, and that if you're not willing to do that work, you're really not going to be in in the in as robust and successful long-term loving relationships as you probably desire. And this is true, not just with our lovers or our partners. This is also true with our parents, with our children, with our siblings. Um, one time I was giving a lecture to about 500 people and um, a woman who was in her 70s or 80s, right, sitting right up front, raised her hand. And, was, and she said, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying that if we want to really show love to the people in our lives, we have to be willing to lie to them. And I said, yes, in essence, that's what I'm saying. And she said, well, um, I have a sister, and for about 40 years now, we've always only told each other the truth. And I said, well, that's fascinating. Can you tell me a little bit more about your relationship with your sister? And she said, oh, I hate that. And I can't repeat the word that she used for her sister on the (laughs) radio, but (laughs) she said, I hate that. expletive about her sister and the whole crowd roared with laughter and she looked around and she hadn't realized that she made a joke. But um, the point is, I think, that um, despite the fact that she had an ongoing relationship with her sister, it really wasn't a successful and loving one because they weren't willing to compromise the truth when the truth needed to be compromised in pursuit of this higher goal of caring for the other person. 
One of the aspects of that is that we really have to be able to get out of ourselves and and really understand the feelings and the mind of another person, which is so hard, as you alluded to before, for most people to do. Absolutely. I mean, here is where, Jeff, you have you've just put your finger on the very heart of the problem. Um, And it's a two-sided thing, because on the one hand, we don't want to err into what we sometimes call paternalism or assuming that we know for another person what's better for them. And sometimes that's how lies go wrong. And sometimes when the government, for example, lies to us, we feel like, oh, the government owed us the truth and they're justifying it to themselves by saying we know better for the citizenry than, than they know what's for them. But when it comes to um, our loving relationships, if you really think about it, what are you doing all the time? If you have children, if you have a lover, if you have um, parents or siblings, you're constantly, if you're being a good lover, if you're being a really caring person, in my opinion, you're you're trying to step into that other person's shoes. You're trying to see how the world looks from their eyes. I mean, that's that's the real goal of um, that's why we travel together and why it's so much more fun to travel together than to travel by oneself for most people because you're looking at a beautiful thing or you nudge your partner and you say look at that and then suddenly they see the world in the same way that you're seeing the world so we like to pretend that we're no good at this that you know I have no idea what's going on in your head and you have no idea what's going on in mine but as a matter of fact we're actually incredibly adept at it and we shouldn't undersell ourselves in our ability to um, to imagine, to use our imagines in, the, in a really uh, creative and active way to, to understand where that other person is coming from, to try to think ourselves through their circumstances and to try and put ourselves in their shoes. And we do this as a natural part of trying to care for one another. And we're always asking each other, well, put yourself in my shoes. Try and think about how I see it. And if we can do that um, when we are perhaps demanding the truth from each other or we're demanding something else entirely from each other, we can also do it when we're thinking about how we communicate with one another, with how we, how we communicate with the people that we care about. I mean, that's, you've exactly hit the hammer on the head. That's the goal, is to be able to do that. And if we can do that, then we recognize that we can be more nuanced in the way we, can, we communicate with one another and not simply have a recourse to to some abstract notion like the bare truth, um, which is incredibly elusive anyway. I mean, when when Irving Goffman put out this classic um, study of sociology that's now canonical, um, the presentation of self in everyday life, what he pointed out, and everybody now recognizes, is that there there's not one Clancy or one Jeff. There's many different um, roles that we play. We, there's There's Clancy the professor, Clancy the writer, Clancy the husband, Clancy the father, Clancy the son, and each one of those Clancy's has different communicative responsibilities, has different care responsibilities, and in a sense has different truths and or falsehoods he's accountable for. Another part of that and the corollary of that, I suppose, and this is where there are certainly cultural differences we can talk about, is the appreciation of mystery and understanding and accepting the mystery that's inherent in some of those relationships, which, which other cultures seem to do much better than Americans do. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, when I 
started really working on this literature, I became fascinated by um, the Upanishadic and Vedic literature in uh, the Indian tradition, um, and particularly the Kama Sutra, which we Westerners think of as a sex manual, but it's not a sex manual at all. It's it's an extremely complicated psychological and philosophical treatise on the nature of love, and many of the skills that um, the prospective lover are taught in that um, in that famous and wonderful um, book, which is also very much a spiritual book, um, are skills of deception, skills of manipulation and communication, skills of preserving, enhancing, and maximizing, um, as you say, mystery, also secrecy, also um, the kind of invitations of secrecy. Then I went and looked at the Japanese literature, and I and I saw how, for example, the great novelist uh, Tanizaki, Japanese novelist Tanizaki, um, celebrates the culture of mystery and the power of shadow and the fact that it's not truth that we want so much in our love relationships as it is allure and and um, the kind of and, and the suggestive the suggestiveness of veils of hiding the truth of how um, hiding what we think might be the truth provokes the imagination and invites us into relationships. And then I went and I looked at the um, Chinese tradition and I discovered how in both Confucianism and Buddhism, um, in the Confucian harm, uh, the Confucian virtue of Li, which re- roughly translate as, translates as harmony, and in the um, Buddhist uh, tradition of skillful speech, um, both of those both of those particular ethical virtues respect the fact that um, truth has nuance that um, respect for others and care for others may require um, something other than a kind of Western notion of the truth, and that there is um, a deep importance to these concepts of mystery, the deployment of the imagination, the creative faculties of human mind, particularly in the context of erotic love. It's interesting how popular culture deals with this, because in American popular culture, rather than dealing with it in ter- necessarily in terms of that mystery, in terms of that allure, we have you know the romantic comedy that's really about misunderstanding and, and right. what happens when people don't understand each other completely and it becomes kind of comic in its, in its outcome, as opposed to really the same ideas that underlie mystery and allure and, and the kind of things that you're talking about. It's just how popular culture deals with it differently. Yes, absolutely. And, and um, popular culture deals with it very differently um, in the East and the West, as you, as you pointed out. And we, we, we tend to um, look for a kind of Western comic um, reconciliation mm-hmm. where um, the truth in some sense triumphs, the confusions created by mystery, whereas um, in the East, um, there is much more of a celebration of um, the, the, the kind of erotic potency of the mystery and how mystery, even in long-term um, husband and wife relationships, like, uh, again, I think of Tanizaki's novel, novel The Key, how, how important the mysteries of the personality and the projections of the imagination are to the success of that marriage. And you wouldn't believe how many emails, literally hundreds of emails I've had from um, couples and or husbands or wives who've been happily married for 20, 30, 40, 50 years telling me um, 
Clancy, I've read your book and you're absolutely right. Or I read your op-ed piece in the New York Times and you're absolutely right. The only way I've been managed, I've managed to be married for 50 years is because I learned how to lie to my partner, how to keep secrets, how to tell him what he needs to hear rather than, and what he wants to hear rather than what he's necessarily demanding to hear or he, for a moment he thinks he needs to hear when he's demanding the truth. But another thing I'd like to say about, um, kind of the rom-com tradition in the West is, it originates in the comic traditions of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And when we look at um, a play like Much Ado About Nothing, where you have Beatrice and Benedict who are arguing, and I discussed this in, in, in the book, Love, my book, Love and Lies, but when, who are constantly arguing with each other, and despite the fact they're, that they're profoundly romantically attracted to each other and they want to get together, it takes uh, all of the um, elaborate comic deceptions of their friends and the elaborate comic deceptions of each other until the finally they're they're about to be married and they're still denying the fact that they are in love with one another and then finally benedict says well if i were going to be married we're going to be married and man is a giddy thing and that's all i have to say about it and this um this man is a giddy thing is is kind of brings me back to to what you've been saying which is like you know can't we can't we celebrate the fact that we're not so deeply grounded in the truth as we like to pretend and that romance and love and marriage are supposed to be giddy things you know we're supposed to be kind of taken over by our imagination and that's uh, uh and, and then it's similarly giddy in so many of our different um love relationships that we don't have to be um, we don't have to be scientists when we're lovers. You know, that, that's a different part of how our minds operate. How much of this emanates from childhood in the experiences that we have as a child? Okay, uh, very profound question. I think, um, well, it's really not just what I think. Um, it was the dogma in the psychological literature until the late 70s and early 80s that um, children didn't lie until age six or so. And I think this was because there weren't a lot of female psychologists until <laughs> until about the last 30 years or so, um, because this is an incredibly silly view. We now recognize that children lie proficiently by the time they're age four, that virtually all children deceive even before they they can speak, and that as soon as they start speaking, um, they start lying. Moreover, um, we have persuasive studies that show that the more proficient children are at lying, the higher IQs they tend to have and the more successful they tend to be later in life. But what is particularly interesting for our conversation is that children are much more inclined to lie to people they care about or strangers that they are worried about, strangers who are expressing fear or anxiety in the, in the situation, the um, experimental situation in which they're being evaluated, than they are to lie to strangers who seem um, very confident and self-assured. So it looks like from the time we are two or three years old, we are already lying for reasons of care. That's part of the story. So it, it looks like it's kind of hardwired into us. But more, uh, the other part of the story is that where do we learn about love and lie? Do we learn about lying and we learn about love from our parents from a very early age? And um, when we look at the scientific literature, it looks like um, we start lying um, uh, 
very early on, not only to our parents, but also because we model our parents and that the lies that our parents tell us are mostly motivated out of by love. But we recognize the fact um, over time that they're lying to us out of love and we mimic that behavior. And that goes to the heart. I mean, it circles back to what we talked about before in terms of empathy. There was this recent incident Mm -hmm. that, that, that I'm sure many of our listeners have read about where the Secretary of Veterans Affairs was talking to a soldier who was in special forces and he was sympathizing with him and he, he was, this was a homeless veteran in Los Angeles. And and the Secretary of Veterans says, well, you know, I was in special forces too and I understand, yada, yada, yada. And it turned out that he wasn't, but it was out of this sense of empathy and getting outside of oneself. Right. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, these are... Um, these are the kinds of lies that we, for me, we very mistakenly condemn in a hypocritical and knee-jerk sort of way without reflecting upon, you know, what are the larger goals of communication? What are we really trying um, to accomplish when we're talking to each other? And the, the great um, German uh, philosopher and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who died in a Nazi concentration camp, in part because he refused to not to lie and refuse to compromise his beliefs, introduced this concept called what, that he called the living truth. And when he was talking about the living truth, he's talking about exactly the example you just gave, where someone is telling a lie on, on the face of um, the communicative situation in order to express a deeper empathy or a deeper truth that couldn't be obtained by kind of the naked truth, by simply telling the truth straightforwardly. And when we think about it, so many of the stories we tell each other, so many of the stories we tell our children, for some of us, the stories that are told in the Bible or in other religious texts might turn out to be um, false under the careful scrutiny of pure objective truth, but they express a a deeper, what Bonhoeffer called a living truth that we can really understand and identify with because they are told in in, in the form of a a story or a parable or um, one human being being empathic with another human being by um, sharing their experience, even, even if they haven't had exactly the same experience. Clancy Martin, the book is Love and Lies, an essay on truthfulness, deceit, and the growth and care of erotic love. Clancy, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's really been my pleasure. The the conversation was fantastic and just terrific questions. Thanks so much for having me.